Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network Partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Pallavi Banerjee, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Calgary. We are in conversation about her book, The Opportunity Trap, High-Skilled Workers, Indian Families, and the Failure of the Dependent Visa Program, published by the New York University Press in 2022. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Banerjee about her thoughts on transnational movement and gender visa regimes. Uh, welcome, Dr. Uh, Banerjee. Once again, after tech failures, we are back. <laughs> no problem, Lakshita. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking to you today about my book. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, let's dive right in for the second time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we were experiencing tech issues earlier, but yeah. So just wanted to ask you about your academic journey and what led you to this project. Um, and you've been embroiled with this project since 2010, which is a long, long time. So yeah, just wanted to uh, get into that with you first. For sure. Um, so I actually, I got my PhD where you are at, at the University of Illinois at Chicago from the sociology department. Many years back now, it's been 10 years, wow, uh, 2012 um, is when I graduated, uh, finished uh, my PhD uh, and graduated. So I... Um, you know, I my academic journey really started in India. My first master's was in um, comparative literature from Jadapur University in Kolkata. And then I worked for about five years with developmental organizations like UNICEF, Children International. Um, and while I was doing this work, I uh, sort of had this realization that... Um, the nonprofit sector and the developmental sector is great, but it um, it has this neoliberal underbelly to it, which is sort of it it um, patches up 
the issues and, and, and I just felt this need to go dive deeper into the problems that I was looking at from both of a global and a transnational perspective. And um, and I always wanted to uh, do a PhD, so I thought that would be the time. So I um, started my PhD at UIC in 2005. But, I'll, you know, I started the book with an incident in 1997, which had which stuck with me. So um, this was this was I think I was in like middle school at the time. Uh, and I um, uh, at the time I was meeting several women um, in my close circles. I come from a relatively upper class or upper middle class, upper caste families. So no surprise that I was feeling I was meeting uh, many educated women uh, who were at the time either working in India, but had then moved to the United States to be with their male spouses, these are these women who were in heterosexual relationships, had moved to the United States, uh, mostly with their spouses who were in the tech industry at the time. This was 1997, um, right after the tech boom, and there was a lot of migration from India um, to the United States to work uh, in the tech industry, um, which was fueled, of course, by bodies of shopping agencies in India. And what I found was this really deep uh, dissatisfaction and 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 angst about this move. Uh, and when the the families were moving, they were really happy. But once they were in the United States, after a few months, it seemed like it was you know really weighing down the. Uh, because the women were coming on dependent visas and they could not work, they could not have an identification of their own. And one of my extended, you know, one of one a person in my extended family um, had kind of faced the worst of it, where she she had really severe mental health issues. She went back to India, got a divorce, and then I met her uh, as she was coming back to India. And one of the things that she said was like, "Never ever go to that country on anything else but your own visa." And that was I was too young to understand what was going on. So fast forward 2012, or sorry, 2005, I was in. Um, you know, at the University of Illinois in Chicago. In Chicago, um, I was sort of connecting to the the Indian community, the Indian immigrant community there. Uh, my master's had nothing, my master's project had nothing to do with this. But while I was in Chicago, I kept meeting these women who sounded like this member of my family. And I was really... <laughs> Um, taken aback. I mean, I knew the dependent visa existed, but I I just did not know that it remained in the same form as it was in 1997. This is almost uh, 10 years later. And the women uh, I was meeting sounded like um, this person in my family. And and as I kept meeting them, the other thing that I um, realized was they were very concerned about the silencing that they were facing. They felt that no one at that time knew about their stories or they did not know that um, there was a really large contingent group of women who were not being allowed to work or have any identification of their own. And these women, many of them, most of them worked while they were in India. So that, um, and, and then I got, you know, I got to know some of them and I, 
saw the gender dynamics that followed because of this forced dependence. And so that's how I got to this project. I just was really um, honestly shocked and outraged that this this was going, this was still going on. And these are a privileged group of people. They are, you know, they come on high-skilled, or they're the partners of these women come on high-skilled visas. They were mostly middle-class, upper-caste women and men in India. And, and if this is uh, a consequence of the immigration regime uh, of the United States. I, you know, I, I just wanted to explore that because it kind of showed also the underbelly of the gendered and racialized immigration regime um, of the United States. Yeah. yeah, no, I, and, and I was going to actually ask you about the very first, it's, it's a very poignant sort of, uh, uh, anecdote or, or or this telling of this incident you just described with the close family member of yours it's it's so it's so gripping and really sets the tone for the rest of the book uh, as well and and I was going to ask you about that but thank you for bringing that up on your own because that connects very closely to uh, you know as a person who's just come out of field work myself very invested in method so I'm you know I'm constantly now like how did people go about doing this and and you uh, really uh, I would say have have done a wonderful job of laying out your own positionality vis-a-vis your interlocutors, um, um, and and you know if you can start by telling us about who your interlocutors were and and something that you refer to as as standpoint sociology and and you refer to yourself as a standpoint sociologist on on page twenty six of your book and and I was really intrigued by that by that concept and and I really I, yeah just was hoping you'd get into some of the methodological stuff and your relationship with your interlocutors and how that grew because uh yeah I mean you detail both male and female dependents uh, so men and women as dependents and and the struggle to get through to the you know the husbands of of the nurses who happened to be largely women was was very very deeply felt by me so uh, uh yeah just wanted to get into that sure uh thank you for that's a great question so uh standpoint uh you know being a standpoint sociologist this this is really built on the the really rich treasure of work done by Black feminists in the United States, as well as actually Dalit feminists in 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 India, um, who uh, have uh, for a very long time um, centered the need and centered the the importance and the value of. Uh, positionality of the researcher, because a researcher's positionality really defines um, power relationships within the research, but also um, e- e- but also their political stances, right, where they are, how they are approaching their research. And it's really important, like Patricia L. Collins and Kathy Cohen and others say, that it's really important to position yourself within your research so that you are... Um, you are at the table, you know, your perspective is on the table, you are not uh, interacting with the people, the communities that uh, are participating in your research as um, objects, right? You are part of 
of that uh, interlocution or or that that conversation and um, that conversation is laced by the researchers own power um dynamic their positionalities the the different intersecting positionalities so that uh, was really uh, important to me to kind of place but i also as a indian upper caste um you know, relatively privileged uh, woman um, who had quite a stable job before coming to the United States to get a PhD, Um, I connected to the women that I was meeting on almost um, an equal footing, except that because I was doing my PhD, there seemed to be this very wide division between us, uh, between me and and them. And they wanted, um, I, I say this in the book, they often wanted the book to become their voices, their activism. And that's how it started. Um, but, um, but I also would like to share that I actually, while I was thinking of doing a PhD, I also met my partner, um, uh, my current partner, who was uh, at the time doing a PhD in Northwestern at Northwestern University. And so I, before I got into, um, you know, I had applied for the PhD and before I got into my PhD, I had come to Chicago and joined him. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, you know, a heterosexual relationship. And so getting a visa to come and join him was easy at the time. I mean, um, um, in in the sense that same-sex couples did not have that privilege. So anyway, so I came to um, Chicago actually on a dependent student visa um, with the knowledge that in a few months my visa would change into uh, my own independent visa, independent visa. And I was I was confident about that. And I had visited the United States before on work visas, but just being on somebody else's like identity identity category and being invisibilized weighed down on me so much even like the two of the few months that I was on that visa that it gave me a different understanding of what dependence can mean um, and all this while you know I was still sort of connected to the work that I was doing before and it was not as if I was I was just home or uh, there was this this weight that you know, I am a charge of of someone else, and that that a uh, uh, structure, uh, uh, the government could do this to an individual was very present. So that's also one of my standpoints. Apart from being an immigrant woman, a brown immigrant woman in in the United States, but also I also saw some wearing down of some of my privileges that I had in India, and that also brought me to this work. So that's sort of the standpoint, um, um, you know, a standpoint sociologist, as I call myself, but that's the explanation of standpoint theory as it stands in relation to my work. But I also talk about standpoint dilemmas. So given that I am an upper caste um, woman, a a lot of my um, participants who were, and I call interlocutors participants, and that's what I've called in the research cell, continuing doing that. Uh, so my participants who were married to men came from North India. Most of them were upper caste, upper, you know, relatively upper to mi- upper middle class uh, folks from India. And... Um, 
And there was, I had this standpoint dilemma for a long time because the immigration regime in in the United States is oppressive and it's oppressive to uh, the most minoritized groups and the more minor intersectionally minoritized you are, you feel the brunt of this regime more. So I always had this dilemma that, um, you know, advocating for a group that is has certain privileges, but then it was also important to uh, lay out the the um, sort of uh, what the immigration regime could do to a relatively privileged group of um, migrants, and I call them migrants because of their unstable. Um, uh, living situations, though they were temporary uh, workers and non-immigrants. and But they identified themselves as immigrants, but they were not really immigrants. So I, I kind of come to this term migrant to indicate their unstable and uh, temporary um, situation in the United States. Uh, and so that, you know, I also had the standpoint dilemma throughout throughout the journey of this research. Talking about the men, you you talked about like I had um, this um, two groups. So when as I was, um, you know, I was meeting a lot of women on dependent visas, and eventually I met their spouses who were on high skilled work or high school visas. But I was sitting in a graduate class and I was reading about uh, Indian nurses who have been migrating to the United States since the 1970s uh, as the main breadwinner, and they they were in the same situation as the tech workers who uh, were also migrating to the United States on high-skill work visas and then bringing their families. And I got really curious. And then at the time, I was talking to my um, supervisor or advisor, Dr. Barbara Risman, and she sort of said that, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if you also had men dependents on your on your uh, in your research and and that like you know that caught a bug in me and I I kind of went in search of uh, of men who were dependents within the tech field it was really hard to find men who were on dependent visas because even when women were the main breadwinners and they came as the main um, migrant in the tech industry what was interesting is that they remained as soon as they got married, they changed their visas and their husbands often became the main breadwinners in the United States. And so that was, I mean, that's maybe area for another research, but I did not find a comparative group where I could actually um, talk to men who were on dependent visas. And then I had this graduate seminar where I was reading Sheba George's work, who had done her research in Chicago. And so I, um, I found that there were, you know, um, communities of nurses that mostly lived in the northern suburbs or the eastern sub- western suburbs of Chicago um, near the churches. And they were mostly Christians from the state of Kerala and uh, they were Keralaite Christians and they lived close to the churches. So I started going to the churches to make uh, connections with this community. And, well, there was, you know, talking about standpoint, it was really, really difficult because, I mean, with the women who sort of identified with me and they were very happy to talk to me, the community of nurses really did not see me as one of their own. I was a Hindu or I, you know, I don't 
I'm not religious. I identify as an atheist, but my last name suggests that I'm a upper caste Hindu person. And so they were like, why are you here? You know, why are you in the church? And I, I made it very clear that I was there because I was interested in this research. But um, I kept going to these um, events in the churches and I, you know, they were not hostile, but they, there was this just sort of this question, why are you, you know, why are you here? And, um, and it was really difficult to, for the men to even like look at me. (laughs) So, um, uh, because they did not see me as, um, one, they did not see me as part of the community, but they were also suspicious of me because I wanted to interrogate the gender dynamics that came out of them being dependents in the family. And I was very affront about it. But the way that uh, that uh, c- the connection happened is I shifted my stance a little bit and I was like, well, if the men are not interested in talking to me, it would be very interesting to know what it is like to be a breadwinner in a family, um, you know, where so in many ways the gender roles are being reversed or the gender expectations are being reversed. So I started talking to the the nurses in in this church setting, and they I found were more amenable to talking, and they were more they they welcomed me more as, once they realized that I was not there um, to extract like information that would uh, show the community in bad light. Or uh, there was some trust building that happened over the time because I was participating in various things in ways that was respectful. And so uh, once uh, the nurses welcomed me into their communities and eventually in their homes, the men became more amenable to talking, though, you know, we can talk about this. I'm not, I'm talking for a long time, so I'll stop. But uh, the men um, were, um, you know, they, they, they agreed to talk to me, but there was still a barrier you know they they would not talk to me about their dependent status and other things and we can get into it later but that's how I think my various standpoints came together in even starting this research so on one hand the women who were on dependent visas welcomed me and thought um that this work and it was almost propelled by them. They kept telling me do something about this. And so it was propelled by the women who were on dependent visas, not so much their husbands who were on high skill visas, you know, but uh, the, the women mostly. And on the other hand, this other, this community where the women were the main breadwinners, uh, it, there was almost a deeper silencing of this, this status. And, and, because there was more silencing around from the dependent men on their status and on their situation, there was it was harder for them to even uh, accept me as um, part of you know as part of someone who can tell their stories because they did not want their stories to be told um, in the beginning and that changed later. But yeah, yeah. Uh, no, thank you for getting into that. And please do not apologize for talking. This is precisely why you're here and why we're all listening to uh, uh, your your thoughts on this matter. Because, yeah, and, and one thing that I really appreciated about, you know, even though there is like this 
urge to instantly um, compare, oh, men and, and women dependent, so that let's go. It, it's handled with a lot of care in terms of not pitching them as opposites, but, but taking into account that these are not the same groups of people, even though they share a passport, you know, a nationality and, and all of that, they aren't same groups of people. Uh, it's abundantly clear throughout your text that they're not hanging out with each other. You didn't find them uh, hanging out together. They are participating in very different kind of cultural productions and, and cultural spaces. So, so that's abundantly clear. And I really appreciate uh, the way in which, you know, the interactions and, and, and the conversations around these two communities and the gendered conversations were handled. So that was abundantly clear. Um, um, one of the interesting things about your text is it sort of takes these ideas, or uh, you know, ideas around state recognition, things like visa and dependent visa, even which nobody really thinks about, right? Like you mentioned, it's not even a second thought unless you have to experience it yourself. You don't think about it, and 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 to do it among a group of people who have some kind of privilege, whether it's caste or class-based or gender-based privilege for the men, uh, you know, in, in many cases, there's this, there's this, the ideas of humiliation uh, and dignity sort of really tie in um, this production of this fractured self, which, you know, going back and forth from the identification to, you know, who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. And a lot of your work is just looking at the everyday life of the dependent visa. It comes to life. Um, and so I, I wanted to get into that, this sort of ideas of humil humiliation and dignity, which are, you know, terms that come from, uh, um, you know, Dalit literature in the Indian context and, you know, uh, literature, you know, there, there's, there's all sorts of history. There's a, but in, in this context happens to be, very privileged migrants, but you handle it with, so I just wanted to get into those terms and what that means. Right. Thank you so much for that question. That's a great question and a great reading of the book. Um, uh, so I, um, that's, that's actually what drew me to this project and this uh, idea of, uh, so while you mentioned, while the, uh, the, um, the idea or 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 uh, the construct of dependency related to a state imposed dependence right uh, this is the state the the united states government imposing dependence on groups of people and this happened i mean indians are the largest group of um migrants to experience this but there are other groups um that also go through this uh, this um trajectory if they come to the united states on certain kinds of visas right um is that while that is invisible what is more invisible is why this is a problem and because ideas of dignity and humility are seen as um individual emotions and feelings they are affect they are not really um discussed as as part of uh policy right so um affect is not something that is really given any credence in in policy change and um so um but what i was experiencing in both groups right in in you know as as not in comparative ways but as separately that the men 
And these men were actually like, they were Christian men, minoritized in India. You know, they did not belong sometimes to um, upper class or, you know, they were lower to lower middle class families um, in India. And they have been minoritized within the Indian context always. And so they they had experience with indignity and humiliation in other ways, but they were at least secure in their in their home lives. They they felt they were the heads of the household and they um they were you know leaders in their communities often and they come to the United States and all of that is lost and they know this um feeling of humiliation and indignity in different ways than the women, dependent women did when they were in India. And so they even refused to talk about this dependence because they did not want to be re-victimized, right? So that was really important to me to highlight. But if with the women dependents, you know, many of them talked about their lives having ended. They talked about ending their lives. They talked about that, um, you know, I I have this really interesting quote. I asked this person, and she she was this very articulate, fiery um, woman who had always considered herself as an independent uh, woman and having a very strong, solid identity of her own. I told her how she feels being on this on the visa, and she says, it feels like I'm a vegetable. I call it the vegetable visa, right? I, I'm vegetating. I'm not a person anymore. And this not a person anymore just kept coming up all the time. And I wanted to explore what that is. And 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 um, and while they, these are very privileged groups of people, dignity is important to everyone. And, you know, I wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor that um, despite the privilege, dignity that is really deeply racialized and gendered, um, the loss of loss of dignity and the loss of self and the loss of personhood needs to be tied to the everyday material experiences. So I, I wanted to connect this affective expression of being on dip- as a being a dependent to the everyday materiality. And that's why I went into the everyday lives, like, you know, the everyday grunt life of these um, families and what they do on a daily basis, how they raise their children, how they interact with institutions like doing groceries or going to their kids' schools or or even like going to um, the DMV to get a driver's license. What does do these things mean for um, these families, and particularly the dependent visa holders, and what that does to their sense of self and dignity. So that's, uh, I wanted to enliven and in place these aspects so that we could tell a story of privilege, but as well as, um, you know, as, as well as chipping away, not of privilege, but chipping away of the self. So no, that's, that's, and this sort of, it's so important to, and, and you really with this work provide a nuanced look at what the immigrant looks like to the United States, specifically by considering like a high-skilled uh, a group of people like nurses and tech workers both being high-skilled and so really challenges what, what, you know, 
the average persons or and you see it throughout you know whether they are the bosses or the colleagues of the um, tech workers who are like oh why aren't you working well i can't because the visa and doesn't allow me to do so or even like the um, government officials that you uh, question and stuff even they didn't know what the implications were and i'm wondering like you know now that you say it what does that mean when there's such a chasm between uh this these very like hard line rules about like this is what you're supposed to do and you know you mentioned it starts at the visa interview at the home country wherever the visa interview is taking place in the embassy itself it starts over there this process of humiliation and then this complete lack of understanding by these officials who were probably part of this entire like you are part of the you know uh this regime and putting it in place and they don't know what what the implications of the dependent visa is what does that do what are the implications of such a difference you know a chasm between the official line and and those who are the upholders of this law and not knowing what that law is right right i think uh, you know what you're getting at is invisibilization and um you know and 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 the invisibilization of the experience itself and i don't you know i don't know that i say this very um uh, sort of like I, i lay it out very well in the book but i think the, this invisibilization it it's not intentional but it's intended right like no one the, the people who were or, or the officials the legislators that i talked to a couple of them knew about this but most of them were like i mean you know i i i cite chandra mohanty's work in the book uh, saying that um it's this idea of universal third world women as universal dependents and so there was not even a question in the minds of most of the um legislators that i talked to that this would be a problem for indian women or women from the global south that you know that women from the global south are sort of natural dependents i mean you know many of them said oh do indian women work like and and so that 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 very idea that um women from the global south is are universal dependents mohanty wrote this in 1987 right and and this has persisted i mean nothing has really changed from that perception at least in the context of an imperial governmental structure has not changed right the us is an imperial um imperial body or or the government of uh, the united states operates as an imperial power in the world and and so this was this was really i mean the there was this was blindness and uh, an intended blindness and that served the the um sort of the neoliberal structure of of uh, how us does business in the world in the global world right like so um this this really worked for their tech industries their healthcare industries if you had dependent spouses who were taking care of homes who had then you could create these ideal workers uh, who would not i mean they do have family responsibilities but they could not really talk about that in the workplace because the you know their their employers knew that there was a dependent spouse at home and what was interesting here is this invisibilization um as i was talking to the legislators it was amply clear that they were only thinking of women whereas there were men also coming in and that i think really uh 
uh, was important uh, to highlight for me, um, and not because you know men suffer more, but it 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 the depend to break this notion of dependence. I think it uh, what needed to be shown is the gender and the racialized implications of these policies. So I think it's the invisibilization, uh, the the chasm that you talk about is uh, this invisibilization, which is intended in many ways, uh, maybe not intentional, but intended so that this, the economy, the neoliberal economy and the neoliberal, um, the, the neoliberal trajectory of global migration is kept in place. Because if we are talking about it, then this would basically fall apart. So this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right. Right. No, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And and I think I like this idea of like whether or not it's intentional is definitely like intended. So it's not up to the individual. And that's why this constant tussle between the structure and the and the individual. And there's like, where does one end? Just sort of classic sociological questions <laughs> that, you know, you asked with Marx Weber Durkheim in your first year sort of come back to haunt you. It's like, where does the structure begin, the individual end and all those things and the implications are, you know, from like you said, they're very detrimental to the mental health and, and actually threaten the lives of many uh, of these individuals who come to uh, come to the US uh, with this particular visa. Um, this idea of, of, you sort of mentioned, and this goes at multiple times in your text about this idea of forced heteropatriarchy onto the individuals, uh, so onto the people who are Indian migrants who are entering through this particular visa, you know, sort of this idea of the 1950s uh, American housewife who's at home doing all of the work and, and, and that sort of, um, and, but, but while you highlight these oppressive forced heteropatriarchy, heteropatriarchal structures, you also, there is a tension between how heteropatriarchy is, um, understood by these different sets of interlocutors. Uh, I, I just very much remember this example on 105 where you mentioned the nurses sort of pointing out that hospitals don't like hiring um, Indian nurses because they keep going back to the families for a long period of time. And that's a problem for them because it's not the classic neoliberal subject, you know, dedicated to work, which many of the tech workers are, but the nurses sort of, uh, in their devotion to heteropatriarchy also are disrupting it. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on on these different versions of heteropatriarchy sort of hanging in your book and who's doing what and where the disruptions are happening. 
Absolutely. That's an excellent question. I think, um, well, I mean, you know, uh, on a very, I would say, basic level, like the visas themselves are heteropatriarchal because they are, um, they are, they were designed for women, particularly. And and um, I think the, the disruption comes right away as we highlight families where women are the breadwinners, right? So that that's a, the the beginning of the disruption, but um, but it it's um, I think what it does these visas do, and you know we were talking about choice. I mean, the visas are given to individuals, and so it's seen as an as individual choice. I mean, people could choose. I mean, I I have gone to different conferences. Um, and one question I, or, you know, when I talk to journalists, one question that comes up is why do these women or even men, you know, who have relative um, agency within the families decide to come? Like these women were taught, were working and in India and they are educated. Why did they decide to come? And it's seen as an individual choice, right? And, and when you, when you make this about an individual choice, you are, or when the narrative or the grand narrative is about individual choice, it uh, also hides the heteropatriarchal nature of the policy itself. So I think there is that tension as well. I wanted to kind of highlight that here. Uh, but I, you know, talking of disruptions, I felt like there were different aspects of disruption. So uh, the very, uh, fact that these were not 1950s nuclear families and even in the 1950s women were intensely american white american middle class women were intensely unhappy which led to betty friedan's book and then and basically the second wave feminist (laughs) feminist movement and so um and and i'll talk about the women first the women in this research in my um my, my the participants were um, they did not have a movement to join just because um, you know they were seen as an isolated group of people with individual choice. So there was not a movement to join. But throughout this work, and you know, and later, um, I think um, starting in 2015, there was more of a, a online presence of these women telling their stories on their own, where they they kept talking about how oppressive this system is, right? And that it also disrupts heteropatriarchy in a way that, you know, these these women are, they are privileged, they have, you know, their, their uh, the family has enough to get by, I would think, though, though that's debatable. <laughs> but it, given, given that um, it uh, is really uh, one income, structure that uh, that creates different kinds of dependence uh, so we can get into that but i'm what i'm saying is that in their interlocutor as they are um expressing their angst and their um their deep um concerns i would say um through their lives i think that disrupts heteropatriarchy many many of the women take drastic steps like you know, they go back to India. They um, they disrupt um, the the family, the stable family that the policy is intended to create. And that the tech workers are more dedicated workers, but when the family is disrupted, their work is affected. So that's another 
level of disruption. I do call it that acts of disruption in the book. And then, um, and as you mentioned with the families of the nurses, I think there, there are different, um, aspects of this. One is, as you mentioned, that the nurses do take time to take care of their families. They do, um, they often, you know, they often do multiple shifts to keep a certain certain notion of heteropatriarchy intact, but that also disrupts what they are, who they are as workers. And, and so there, it creates a tension. But the, some of the nurses also really emphasized um, throughout the book or throughout, sorry, throughout the research that they needed their partners, their husbands to, you know, step up because they could not really, um, you know, continue with doing so many shifts, like three shifts at work, multiple shifts. So, and and the men did get really attached to the idea of taking care of children. So they 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 did get really attached to the idea of being the main caregivers for their children. And they they while they kept the narrative around. Uh, breadwinner or not breadwinner but head of the household and the father figure alive it was embedded in care it was that I care for my child so that's why it was not the authoritarian father it was the caring father right and so that also just at least disrupts the notion of what is often understood as traditional patriarchal families that the nurses families were really trying hard to keep intact, but disrupting it at the same time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know if no, that answers I, I do want to... I'm sorry, just... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. That does answer in some way. I mean, the, yeah, like I said, part of the thing, we just tend to understand heteropatriarchy as this one thing when it's really, as it's apparent in your book, it's really not this one thing. And often it's not even a smooth like it's not an iteration of one or the other it's it's often very combative to keep different uh you know versions uh alive intact and and everything and they tend to kind of clash sometimes it's not very easy to say oh it's the same way we'll be heteropatriarchal in the same way it's often quite nuanced and and, and problematic but i sorry continue no, and I also wanted to quickly add to that, uh, to what you said, was that, uh, yeah, heteropatriarchy is not monolithic. It does not, I mean, as, you know, as in gender, it does not really um, follow the norms of the hetero, uh, norms of the heteronorm, like, rigidly, right? I mean, the the tech workers, the men, often felt terribly guilty about uh, their wives being on these dependent visas because of them. They didn't do very much about it most of the time, but at least in conversation they did feel guilty and they 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 wanted to support their uh, wives to transition out of it. Um, so it was not that the men were very comfortable and sad because they were men and they had them they were the breadwinners. They were very secure in their position. So that itself was also disruptive of the heteronormativity and heteropatriarchy in many ways. Um, But what was keeping heteropatriarchy alive was really the structural, like the structural forces. What was happening in the everyday lives of um, 
these uh, families was actually disruptive to heteropatriarchy in many ways, but because the work structure was Hetero, based on heteropatriarchy. The visa structure was based on heteropatriarchy. That is what was keeping heteropatriarchy alive. So even if the tech workers wanted to spend a week with their families taking care of the kids, they could not because, you know, because of the demands of their time and that because their visas are tied to their, or their, their, work, their status, their immigration status is tied to their work visas. So um, I, I just wanted to also highlight that. No, no, that, that, thank you for adding that and, and sort of brings me, while I do want to get to the question of parenting and child rearing, which you've devoted quite a bit of, you know, uh, space to in your in your text and, and that last chapter specifically for anybody interested in parenting is, is uh, uh, quite wonderful to read through and, and gives you a lot of nuanced understanding of, of what you know, it means to parent as a temporary migrant, quote unquote. So, so that was quite interesting. But before we get into that, I do want to address a the question of choice, which comes back to haunt us in various ways. It becomes like, oh, it's like you said earlier, it's my choice. So it becomes the size of site of you know taking back some of the agency that the structure has stripped from you, and and b this question of choice to specifically work. So it's sort of a multi-parted question, but but the second part is like uh, within, the, and these are working visas, right? At one point in the book, you do say that you'd realize that you could not get a full sense of what the dependence of, you know, the, the spouses look like if you didn't look at the work structures of their partners who were working, whose visas they were, you know, uh, on, whose identity they were a part of. And, and that becomes because these uh so i wanted to get into what that means plus this and then another part of it is and we can stop here <laughs> maybe getting ahead of myself but what does it mean to feel like dignity has been taken away from you you have been humiliated if you don't have the right to work especially in a society like the us which is so centered towards you know making humans out of productivity just just based on how productive you are you're a human being <laughs> and and what does that stripping away of that particular right, quote-unquote, means in this context. Right. Thank you for that. I'll start with that because I do address that in the book, I think in chapter three or four, I can't remember, in, in the uh, in the chapter on families. Uh, so at home is what it's called. Um, that was That was the most profound realization that I had, right? That we are... Oh, in in this um, era of late capitalism, we have left human beings with no sense of dignity if they are not productive, and um, and 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 the the angst that the women feel it comes from that they cannot be happy, you know, taking care of their family to care like care is devalued to such such a large extent that. While you know many of them talk about choice, so I'll link that back to choice. They, they they do talk about choice. They do talk about that it was their choice to be with their part, their husbands. It was their choice to um, you know leave their jobs in India because family was important to them. That's how they were raised, and they go back to these gendered scripts of what it means to be married and that you are with their families, with your family and your your husband, and you're taking care of your family. And care came up. A lot in the context of choice, but um, that care, you know, was fun. It, it was okay for a month or so, but 
beyond that, what many of my interlocutors called the honeymoon period of of transitioning where they were like, oh, you know, I'm taking a break from work. This is fun. I'm playing house, basically. So and once that um, phase of playing house um, waned, uh, the realization that they were nothing because they could not work dawned. And I think that is uh, that is perhaps the most profound consequence of late capitalism and particularly in the United States where, you know, the rates of unemployment are very high. Many women, I mean, most women in the United States actually don't work. You know, given this context, these women were feeling that they they were vegetables. They had uh, um, no dignity left because they could not work because they were not productive members of of the society. And so the care that they were giving their family, um, in many ways, the sacrifice that they had made uh, was basically not only, I mean, they had internalized that it was nothing. It it wasn't of any consequence. It did not uh, have any value either in their lives or the society. But it that was the messaging that was also present. Um, so I think that 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 tension is really important and um, interesting to understand late capitalism. Uh, while everything boils down to choice, choice, you know, the choices you make if they are not not productive, if they don't add value to the economy, are dismissed and seen as um, as as worthless like and worthlessness was part of the grand narrative that uh, came down to and and the men did not even want to talk about it because they felt that if they talked about it this idea of them being stripped of their breadwinning role and provider role um, will come alive but also that they would acknowledge that they are not productive members of society. Yeah. Does that sort of answer both of your questions? Yeah, I think so. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you deploy choice in so many different ways, so I didn't want to, but, but with the work question, it really was something that, you know, it did come out in your text, and, and that's why I wanted, because it really is a tension here of of. And, and, you know, at one point, you very beautifully mentioned in the text, it sort of strips caregiving of all of, the, you know, it could have been an opportunity to, uh, you know, take, seek value in nurturing and caring. And that sort of, that's one of the things that's stripped away with this, you know, you know, very, very harsh visa regime that, that, that there's no give, right? And, and everybody's internalized this problem. Um, I, I realize we are in, uh, I'm going to try and wrap it up real quick. But uh, yeah, one of the things that I want to get to real quick is the parenting. And, and that's something you call it visa regimented uh, transcultural cultivation. It's a mouthful, but it's important to understand what, and, and it sort of also breaks up what household chores look like and what caregiving looks like in very abstract terms of like yeah just hang around the house and do stuff uh, you know it's this really funny tiktok i saw where somebody was like it seems like there are only three chores in the house laundry dishes and cooking but that's not the case it's often quite nuanced uh, there's an intellectual aspect to what the the kids should be doing and and what they should be learning who dispenses the money how much can go into what and then you go into a lot of that you know 
uh, working off a lot of the literature on parenting and, and migration and class and you weave in all of these different threads. So I just wanted to, um, and this category of age four mothers, which is also the other thing that you talk about. And, and so I wanted to just get your thoughts on that real quick before we wrap up. And, and sure. so I wanted to just get into that. Sure. That was a very interesting, um, you know, I, that was, that chapter was not in the book initially. And I um, had, I had been thinking about this parenting aspect a lot. And I, um, and because I did not talk to the children, you know, when you're thinking about parenting, it's always important to have this sort of, um, you know, to center perspectives of children. And I, I hadn't, my interviews were not with children. So I, it, yeah, you know, it took me it took me a while to get to this chapter. So um, I was glad that you actually thought that there was um, there was something something new to that 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 chapter. Um, what was really what drew me to that was, as you mentioned, the work, the different kinds of work, right? So Marjorie Duvall wrote this book, "Feeding the Family." Patricia Hill Collins talks about intersectional um, impact of running a family. And so the, the work in the family, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's cooking, cleaning, and like dishes or whatever, the three things that the TikTok video said, but there is a lot of planning and a lot of uh, um, sort of, you know, laundry list of things, talking about laundry, that goes into kind of managing a family. And, uh, and when you are in a situation where you have one income, as most of these families did, um, and you have to, you are pressured to maintain a certain kind of class status, which is middle class, and many of these uh, families were upper middle class in India, so there is a transnational and transcultural pressure to maintain and reproduce the class that they um, that the families have, uh, while not having much of the resources in the United States, right? So, uh, but there is this pressure to emulate middle, middle to upper middle class families, and I would add upper to upper middle class white families, because that's often in the racialized structure of the United States, that's what often immigrants aspire to, to to have. So that's that's the problem of whiteness. Um, so given these structural pressures and adding the nuances of um, sort of regional caste, religious uh, demands that often, um, you know, the literature has, uh, the, the larger literature on immigrants and parenting has documented fall squarely on the mothers, right? So the mothers are often the conduits and the p- passers on of culture. And and when we are talking about India, we're talking about different kinds of language. We are talking about religion. We are talking about art forms, um, while also the pressure of assimilating to the... Um, because, you know, most of these families aspire to live in the U.S. They did not aspire to go back so they wanted their children to fit in so the women were doing i mean well i should say the dependent parent was were doing a lot of this but as as the chapter explains that um it felt squarely on women whether you know in the nurse's family as, as well as the um the tech workers families though the fathers were doing much of the the dependent fathers were doing much of the carting the planning was still being done by 
the women. But the age four women really felt that that if they had children, that had become their identity. And I wanted to mention when we were talking about disruption, many of the women, the age four women did not want to have children because they did not want to fall into this heteropatriarchal regime of just taking just taking care of their child, right, in air quotes. And, and so, but the women that did have children or came with children felt like that had become their identity because of the various things that they had to manage as parents. Given the constraint, they felt it, they did not have any other identity but a parent because... Um, many of the women said that they felt like single mothers because the, their husbands were not involved in parenting. They had to make very um, important and hard decisions on their own often, and they um, their lives were wrapped up in in making sure that their children were, you know, were becoming the ideal <laughs> reproducers of their class culture, you know, uh, religion, and all of all of the the intersecting forces. Um, so, and that I call visa regimented transcultural parenting, mouthful. I try to, you know, I don't know. I try to like abbreviate it, could not. But, um. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. That was just me being a little cheeky, but that's, yeah, no, 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 no. it makes I, a lot of sense. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're not being che- cheeky. I, I struggled with that so much. I even like my editor at... <laughs> at NYU was like can you do something about this like I'll try it was it was even longer Lakshita (laughs) and there was gender and race and all of that and then (laughs) well at least we'll remember this is what I'm trying to say we'll remember the term so I I think it does and and thank you for elaborating on that uh yeah I I think yeah I, I think the fact that it's temporary sort of makes it very different from how uh, you know, parenting happens in in for pa- pa- parenting happens for families who intend on uh, you know who don't know what the fate of their uh, the end of their visa looks like. They don't know if they will end up getting permanent residence, even though they want to. You don't know that, and and that adds a very specific dynamic of you know being in touch with the roots, but also roots means very specifically class caste. You know, reproducing those dynamics uh, as well. Uh, as a last question, and and you know, just sort of going to ask you that in the conclusion, you talk a lot about a fair bit of activism, which is where the book starts initially. Also, a lot of these women, very, you know, forcefully say, "Put this in your book." You know, a lot of men say that as well. Put this in your book. They're very adamant on making their voices heard, and you know, in the afterlife of this research, sort of lives on in the concluding chapter and I'm sure much more than that of the activism that ensued because I think now the visa dependent visa whole the, the dependence can work uh, and, and and you know your articles on the White House sort of uh, website and your interlocutors are calling you can you quickly walk us through that and sort of then also conclude by telling us you know what listeners can look forward to in terms of the next project you have is it the continuation of the same thing or something else entirely new that you're working on Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, so as I mentioned that when I started the project in 2010, um, you know, throughout uh, my fieldwork, so to say, I this was really nowhere in, in the public eye, right? And it was in 2015, or I, actually 2014, starting in 2014, as social media became, um, 
you know, uh, became this medium to express. Um, and many of the many of the women actually who came um, to the United States in the later half of 2000s were women, interestingly, who were working in the media or had jobs where they were vocalizing or they were very used to social media. They they use that platform to tell their stories. And I, I think uh, what was interesting, what's interesting with this project or with the activism around H4 is that largely it has been led by women, uh, the H4 women, the men were not really present in, in the activism. And it was on social media. It was really online. Like it was through blogs. It was through um, documentaries. It was basically like some of the women talking to the media. But there were like, you know, a handful of women doing it. And that was getting a lot of um, lot of attention because it was speaking to um various women, but most women actually that I talked to, I, I actually did interviews after uh, Obama passed the executive order to change, I'll get into that in a minute, uh, change some of the clauses of the visa. Um, and I, I, I interviewed, um, you know, H4 visa holders about the impact. And most of them did not really feel comfortable talking to the media or being part of this larger movement. They supported the movement. They just did not want to say very much. And that was because of the fear that it would um, harm their families in some way. And then when Trump came to power, this fear became more intensified in many ways. So um, while there was activism, I I call it the Trumpian future in in that last um, uh, chapter, and you know Trump is gone, but we don't know. You know how what if we the state of the United States is <laughs> is really volatile. And and so this when your your material conditions are tied to a policy that can be changed through an executive order, whether um, it was um, Obama or Trump, you know who who continued to threaten to rescind the executive order did not get to it, but made all attempts and also um, really put additional surveillance on all immigrants, the fear of an uncertain future, I think, chipped away at this. And while it created certain kinds of activism, it also created activism, which I cr- critique in the in my last chapter, where um, there were um, there were groups of tech workers that joined the Hindus for Trump, which was a very nationalist and, um, you know, if I may say so, um, almost bordering on fascism that, 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 that claimed that Indian workers deserved, um, you know, more grace from the U S government than other immigrants. And it, it kind of just, it, it, uh, made distinctions between like you know it talked about illegal they they use the term illegal immigrants and uh and and identified indian workers as legal immigrants who deserved to who were more deserving so it created these categories of deserving and undeserving immigrants more prominent in the activism it was a fringe group it was a small group and a lot of the uh, my participants did not agree with them but they would take it if that changed the visa regime, right? That's the fear of this sort of divisive and bigoted activism. So there is that 
fear when you have a very oppressive fascist structure, you you have um, the fear of minority minorities being you know pulled towards um, the imperial like um, what do you call it? Sorry, I'm blanking on words now. Um, the 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 imperialistic ideologies of of a nation that they live in. So that's sort of um, so it it was you know the last I the concluding chapter did not really end on a high note, even though the visa uh, the the executive order had changed certain aspects of the visa. There is a new bill that has been introduced now that um, will um, that that hopes to correct the executive order in a way that H4 visa holders will get a work permit as they land, whereas the executive Obama's executive order was um, specific in who could get the work permit. It was those who had who um, had applied, whose uh, employers had applied for the green card. So it still kept. Uh, you know, these women, at least uh, in the dependent visa fold where they could not work for six years, at least. Right. So um, and and it that 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 is still the case. This order, this bill has been introduced. Not sure if it'll pass, but, you know, if it passes, that would be a good thing, I guess. But I think it's really important to keep in mind the kind of activism that um, you um, that that certain groups can do and should do because particularly if you have certain privileges which is also where the book started right like the standpoint dilemma around this advocacy for me was this that um what imperial white supremacist ideologies would be attractive to a group that's privileged and that can claim privilege so that that has always been really hard. Um, my next project, uh, I have a small project that comes out of this, um, this book, which is talking to the children. As I said, I hadn't talked to the children. So the children or uh, the adult ch- or, you know, I-, I would say teen teens um, who have grown up in these families. And many of them are also on dependent visa. So that's, that's another aspect. I mean, there is, there's been some, um, media, um, you know, media attention to what's called, I think they're called some kind of dreamers. Now I'm blanking on the name, but it's, um, um, you know, so there is a move, there is a small movement by the kids of dependent visa holders who are also dependent visa holders who would age out and either have to return to India or move into a student visa if they have to stay in the United States. So as they hit, um, I think 18 or 21, I I can't remember the age, I think 18, they no longer can be dependents of their uh, parents. So so either they would be deported or they would have to change their visas into a student visa if they could go to college. So that's that's a big concern in this community. But also I'm also interested in... in uh, examining how the kids, you know, um, sort of uh, negotiated this 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 idea of uncertainty and indignity that 
or at least one of their parents um, face. So that's sort of a side project. But yeah, I have moved on to other things now. I my I have done two new projects. My new book will be on how um, some um, actually three groups of recently arrived refugees in the United States and Canada. Um, see resettlement from the perspective of the caregiver and the family. So um, uh, Yazidis, Rohingyas, and Syrians, um, how how do they, uh, how does the resettlement policy, the refugee resettlement policy, translate into action from the perspective of the caregiver? So that's, that's sort of my next project. And I'm just starting a new project in uh, uh, inquiring how young people youth um, in immigrant and refugee youth think about race, racism, and anti-racism. So those are the new two projects that I'm working on. Um, We'll see, you know, how they go. Yeah, all of that sounds like a wonderful uh, sort of, you know, extension um, and and move away in some ways from from what you already provided us, which is a wonderful text. yeah, and like you said, the activism around it sort of comes with this grain of salt and, and all of this uh, sort of tension around privilege. And, and that's one of the things I think those questions of dignity and, and, and uh, you know, humiliation really sort of capture that of what it means to be humiliated as a person with privilege in a place where you potentially don't have as much uh, privilege. But thank you so much, Dr. Banerjee, for uh, for joining us, for for all of the lovely insights. And um, once again, I am Lakshata Malik. uh, And this discussion of the Opportunity Trap, published by New York University Press in 2022, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. Um, Yeah, and enjoy the rest of your day.